beginning this morning our series titled Kingdom Families. The title of this message in particular is What a Christian's Life Should Look Like. So my title for you this morning is simply What a Christian's Life Should Look Like. Let me begin by saying this. It would be difficult today to discuss with you the idea of kingdom families, the series that we're delving into this morning, without first putting down some parameters, boundaries that help us understand words, definitions, and ideas. We have ventured upon a time in 2022 when things that were previously assumed can no longer be taken for granted. And those things that were thought to be perennial fixtures of our society are crumbling down around us. And in truth, the force of this pressure isn't only found at the bottom, where deterioration is happening, but also from the top, where Hollywood, the government, and other popular figures are pressing down the structure of the family unit. I think most of us would say amen to this. But what if I told you that the statistics in the church aren't much better than they are outside the church? What if I told you that Christian wives feel unloved and Christian husbands feel unfulfilled? What if I told you that Christian youth are frustrated with the hypocrisy and double talk they see in their Christian parents? What if I told you that it was more common for Christian families to crawl along life's path in hopeless defeatism rather than a family that marches down life's path in victory, loves together, fights for each other and with each other instead of against each other? What if I told you that your spouse's imperfections aren't an excuse for your nonsense? What if I told you that your kids' mistakes aren't an excuse for your legalism instead of the gospel? What if I told you, young people, that your parents' faults aren't reason enough for your disrespect? But... On the other hand, what if I told you that the idea of kingdom families is simply and plainly laid out for us in Holy Scripture, and if we do indeed follow the plan and instructions of God for marriage and parenthood and family, we cannot do anything but succeed. My title for you this morning is What a Christian's Life Should Look Like. And I've got three simple points for you this morning. Wisdom, fullness, and submission. So we're going to begin with the Apostle Paul's lesson on wisdom. That's our first point. Looking back at the text, Ephesians chapter 5, just to wet our palate, we're going to look at it again and read it. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are what? Evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk on wine, because this is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody 
to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our first point, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and following, is wisdom. The first point is what? Wisdom. Paul begins his teaching with a word about wisdom. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. There are three things that I think are important enough for us to note here. First, we are told to, quote, look carefully. First of all, we are told in this verse to look carefully. We aren't to run aimlessly in this life. We aren't to run recklessly in this life. We aren't to be careless, but careful in this life. We are to, quote, look carefully how you walk. The word for carefully is the word akrobos in the Greek. It means to give attention to something. It means to be accurate in one Greek lexicon. In another, it means to be exact. It suggests that we're not carelessly stepping into holes and uneven places on life's journey, but we're intentionally putting our feet down on solid ground. I can't believe how many people live their lives haphazardly with little accuracy or care, but are shocked and surprised when their health, their marriage, and their relationship with their children is on shaky ground. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. They are not accidentally, not unfortunately, but because that's what happens when we fail to live our lives, as the Apostle Paul says, carefully. Second, we aren't only told to look carefully, but we are told to look carefully how we walk. Practically, of course, the Bible has a lot to say about walking. And you know what walking is, one foot in step in, or one foot in front of another, but metaphorically, the Bible has a lot to say about it because it suggests forward momentum rather than backsliding. Progress rather than regress obedience rather than disobedience, movement rather than stagnation. I have some examples that I want to share with you. They're going to come up on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you. Psalm 26, 11. As for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not gratify the lust of the flesh. Colossians 2, verse 6, therefore as you received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. 2 John, verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. There are people who know things, and there are people who know things to such an extent that they can explain them. That's what we would call understanding. But the Apostle Paul here is commanding Christians not to be knowledgeable or understanding, but to be wise and to walk in wisdom. 
That brings us to our final observation here under our first point. Finally, we are told to be wise and not unwise. That is, in the way that we walk. Now, we certainly can't address the meaning of this without understanding the difference between these things. And I've already made a reference to it, but I'll say it like this, and you can write it down if you like. Knowledge is the retention of information. Understanding is the comprehension of information. Wisdom is the application of information. Hear me, church. You can be knowledgeable without being wise but you cannot be wise without being knowledgeable. Throughout the Holy Scriptures, our God has commanded us to love him with our minds, in Matthew 22, verse 37, to think with sober judgment, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, to comprehend, in Ephesians 3, 18, and of course, we are commanded to get wisdom, in Proverbs 4, Verse 5, if this is the case, if we're looking carefully, if we're walking progressively with the, door, with the Lord day in and day out, and if we're wise and not unwise, how can we not succeed? How can we as Christians, or more to our point, how can our marriages and our families not be victorious if we're looking carefully, if we're walking with momentum, and if we're being wise? In fact, Paul says that if we do these things, he says that it's the equivalent of, quote, making the best use of the time because the days are evil right there in the text. Look at it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully how you walk, not as wise but unwise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I love that phrase, making the best use of the time. The literal translation from the Greek is redeeming the time or buying back the time. How many of you would like to buy back a year or two for your marriage or family? How many of you look back over what's taken place and said to yourself, man, I'd love to buy back that argument. I'd love to buy back that foul word. I'd love to buy back that insult. I'd love to buy back that sin. If we aren't seeing these things in our lives and marriages, the only explanation might be that we're not looking carefully. We're not walking or we're not being wise because the scripture tells us that if we do that, we'll be redeeming the time. We'll be making the best use of our time. Here's my question for you before we go to our next point this morning. Are you making the best use of the time that God's given you? Every day when you wake up, not in view of how upset you are about yesterday, but in view of who God is and what he's called you to do, do you wake up with this resolution, today I will look carefully, today I will walk, today I will be wise? If you do that, you'll be redeeming the time. But not only are we called to wisdom, we're also called to fullness. 
Secondly, we're called to fullness. Look back at the text, verses 18 and 19. The apostle Paul says this. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Here it is. Therefore, do not be what? Foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Here it is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now we're going to begin where Paul begins. Don't be filled with wine. This is debauchery. The word debauchery is translated dissipation in the New American Standard Bible. It's translated in one Greek lexicon as, uh, sorry, wildness. It's a suggestion of intemperance or excessiveness. The word for filled in the Greek is the word pleruo. It's a word that means filled or is sometimes translated supplied liberally. Flooded, abounding. Another translation says, pervaded by. We are to be abounding, we are to be flooded, we are to be pervaded by the gifts and the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit. Another interesting feature of this formula is the makeup of the word itself that Paul uses when he says, be filled with the Spirit. It's present passive imperative. You say, that might mean nothing to you. That's okay, I'm going to put it up on the screen. We're going to walk through it. This is what he means when he says, be filled with the Spirit. We don't get this in the English, but in the Greek, we see that the form, the grammatical structure of the word says something. In the present passive imperative, this is what we get. It's present, meaning now, not later. This is not something that the Apostle Paul will let you put off. Today, be filled with the Spirit. The second thing that it notes is that it's in the passive form, which means, interestingly, this is not something that you do to yourself. This is something that God does to you. You cannot fill yourself with the Spirit. You're commanded to be filled, but you don't do the filling. It's interesting, isn't it? It is done to you. God does this. And then, of course, finally, it's in the imperative, which means this is not an option. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Today, so to speak, let God fill you. It's a command. That's what he's saying. And the present imperative form suggests that it's not something that we should See if it happens one time, but it's a regular, ongoing, daily thing that we should be doing. We should be allowing God the Holy Spirit to fill us every single day. An hour later, be filled with the Spirit. Tomorrow, be filled with the Spirit. Next week, help me out, be filled with the Spirit. As Christians, we aren't to be filled by anything but the Spirit. Paul says that being filled with alcohol, which we know is drunkenness, leads to debauchery and dissipation, but to be filled with the Spirit is something entirely different. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't lead to a lack of control and chaos, but here Paul says that to be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, look at it, 
means that we will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we'll be singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. This is what a Spirit-filled person looks like. They're not babbling in uninterpretable languages. They don't gyrate and lose all physical control. To be filled with the Spirit results in being God-focused and God-honoring and bringing things that are God-focused and God-honoring into the lives of people who are around us. Paul says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other, addressing one another this way. Now, what does this have to do with kingdom families? Well, in some of your families, we're not talking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's more like screamo and death metal. Or some of you at the house, it's like all blues all day. This is not what Paul is calling you to. Listen, don't allow anything to fill the space of your soul to such an extent that the Holy Spirit is effectively uninvited. Let me say that again. Don't allow anything or anyone to fill your soul to such an extent that the Holy Spirit is effectively uninvited. Drunkenness is the example that's given here. Undoubtedly, because Paul is speaking to the Ephesians, and in the city of Ephesus, the God of Dionysius, the God of wine and pleasure, was the God who was worshipped. So he was speaking culturally to that group. Do not fall to the pleasures and whims of the God of the age. That doesn't mean drunkenness is allowed anywhere else. The Bible speaks explicitly against drunkenness, non-negotiable. Because 2 Timothy 1.7 says that when God gives to us his spirit, it's a spirit of love and power and self-control. So to be out of control is not to be godly. To be godly is to be under control. Listen, if you're a melancholy, you need to listen. The word of the Lord to you is more important than the word that you have for yourself. A depressive person's voice is the worst voice they could ever hear. It's always self-condemning, it's always negative. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Stop listening to yourself. Get in the Word. Let God speak to you. If you're a domineering personality, you need to hear something. Give way to the Spirit of God in your life. You're not the boss. He is. Your family doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Him. Your life, your house, your family, they're all on loan They all belong to God, and you have been entrusted with stewardship. You don't raise your family the way you think you should raise, the way your dad raised your family. You raise your family the way God says to raise your family. And the reason it makes such perfect sense to you to raise your family another way rather than God's way is because you're not spirit-filled. If you were spirit-filled, you'd find conflict with the way your dad did things, the way your mother did things. 
This leads to our last point, submission. Wisdom, fullness, and submission. Finally, Paul mentions submission here. Let's look at the text again. It's not very long, so we'll read it together. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery or excessiveness, intemperance, wildness. But be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's three things that I think we should note here under the title of submission. First, on the heels of the first two points, wisdom and fullness. Wisdom and fullness lead to thankfulness. An attitude of gratitude, right? There are a multitude of texts that remind us of this. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord because he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. How many circumstances? All circumstances, because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is God's will that you are thankful. It is God's will that you have gratitude. Listen, we should give thanks, not sometimes or occasionally, but always. Are we living our lives with gratitude, with thankfulness? Or are we living our lives as if everything that comes our way, we are entitled to? That's not a submissive attitude. Secondly, wisdom and fullness lead not only to thankfulness, but to perspective. Wisdom and fullness lead to perspective. This I'm pulling from Paul's reference to everything in this command. He says, give thanks, how often? Always, and for how much? Everything. Give thanks always and for everything. In other words, a wise perspective, a spirit-filled perspective is one that sees God's hand of providence at work for his people in the good, in the bad, and in the ugly. God works all things for the good of his people who are called according to his purpose. Friends, only children are too immature to understand this. If you can't see the work of God in your life, if you can't see the hand of God in your life, not only are you not spirit-filled, but you're not even wise. Don't get mad at me. That's Ephesians 5. To be wise and to be spirit-filled means to have a perspective on God's providence. 
It means to be thankful for all things, but what's more, to see his hand working for his glory and your good, even in the things that you find despicable and difficult and challenging, even in the things that you would say to yourself, I would never invite myself into a situation like this or on my family. As Christians, we are to give thanks always and for everything. Finally, wisdom and fullness lead to thankfulness and to perspective, but finally, wisdom and fullness lead to submission. Let's camp here for a moment. Verse 21, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word submit is a compound Greek word. Hupotasso is the word. Hupo means under. Tasso means to place. So literally, this compound word means to place something under something else. It basically means to place something in its proper order. This is a general principle that will serve as a primer for our Christian lives at large. And in particular, I think it's important to note that verse 21 doesn't really appeal to marriages. We're going to get into marriages next week. But for now, the Apostle Paul is telling us that Christians are thankful, that they have a perspective on the work of God in their life, and that they're submissive. Say it with me. Christians are submissive, maybe. Like some of you are not submissive at all. Some of you are very abrasive, and your first thought in any conversation that you have is to show everybody around you that you're abrasive. Sometimes when you have opportunities to be merciful or to be gentle, instead of taking that high road, that godly road, you take the road of flesh, and you say, I'm going to stomp this out and show everybody how strong I am rather than being gentle. Submissiveness is a word that gets a bad rap because we're Americans, right? I mean, we don't submit, right? Somebody puts their finger in our chest and we end the war. That's, that's, how, we, that's how we do it, which, you know, America, America. But America is not the kingdom of God. And our Lord said, the greatest among you will be the slave of all of you. The way we do it in America and the way that Jesus does it within the kingdom of God are not synonymous. Don't get confused. To be submissive in Christ is a glorious thing. To be submissive in Christ is a God-honoring thing. It shows wisdom. It shows fullness. It shows an awareness of the part you play in the scheme of God. The Apostle Paul's telling us, as Christians, married or unmarried, parents or not, the Apostle Paul is telling us that to be Christians is to be thankful, to have a perspective on the sovereignty of God's work in our lives, and to submit to one another. That is, we aren't to fight to be over each other, but we are to know our proper place. 
It doesn't mean there is no authority. It means that we have respect and admonition and love for one another because ultimately we are equally in the grace of God. We aren't arrogant. We aren't conceited. We aren't full of ourselves. We are, it says, submissive to one another. A verse that might give us a fair definition of this idea is found in James chapter 4, verse 6, where James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you want to be opposed by God? Or do you want to receive grace because you humble yourself in his influence? Now, you might be asking me, Pastor, why are you taking us through this? You might be asking me, why are you taking us through this rather than taking us directly to, we had a plan, this was not the plan. I'm going to submit for a second. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're a parent, you know the kids win. I mean, there's some, some fights are not worth fighting. We'll get to that, okay? But getting back to what I wanted to say by way of application, you might be saying, okay, great. We, you just did an exegetical sermon on Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Now, my question is, what does this have to do with Kingdom Families, the series that we are embarking on now? Great question. Here's the answer. It's in the chronology. It's in the chronology. It's in the what? It's in the chronology. You see, this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, doesn't begin with marriage. This letter, the letter to, to Ephesians, begins in chapter 1 with God's purpose of election from eternity past as he chose those who are in Christ according to the pleasure of his will. And then in chapter 2, we're taught that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And then in chapter 3, we're taught that the church is to be a steward of the manifold wisdom of God. And then in chapter 4, we're taught that the gifts of the Spirit are important and direct the lives of individual Christians. And then in chapter 5, we talk about marriage. Then, and only then, are we taught the Christian principles of marriage and parenthood at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. In other words, say amen if you're listening. Church, if we follow the chronology of Ephesians, then we can safely conclude this. Amazing Christian marriages are made by amazing Christians. Don't get it backwards. Your spouse is not going to make you a great Christian. I'm going to say this. You need to hear me. Take responsibility for yourself. I can't make you a great husband or wife. I can't make you a great young person. God can do it with you, passive. Let him work in your life. You put your heels in every chance you get. You're rebellious every chance you get, and you can't figure out why there's discord and disharmony in your home. I'll give you one guess. Well, God just isn't doing anything. No, you are thwarting the work of God 
And God is allowing you in this process, in his sovereignty and in his plan, to do this so that you can learn how stupid you are. So that in his sovereignty and in his plan, you repent and give him glory for recognizing that God's way is always the right way. Always. God is not thwarted by your decision-making, but he'll let you. Pharaoh, I will not let the people go. Okay, this is not going to go good for you. Listen, Christians make up Christian marriages and families. But there is a direct correlation between the amazingness of your family and the amazingness of your relationship with Jesus. If this is the case, and I sincerely believe that it is, then we need to understand a few things. I started our series in Ephesians 5.15 because I strongly believe that we can't live. You listening? We cannot live nominal, negligent Christian lives, but expect our marriages and our families to reflect the truth and glory and wonder of the gospel. That's not how it works. We cannot reap what we do not sow. It means that we must be responsible for ourselves. We cannot do any more of this thing that I call the couch mentality, where we sit idly by on the couch and watch everything around us happen with guts only to comment, but not to contribute. It means that we can't leave the Christian principles of wisdom, fullness, and submission outside the front door of our houses, but wonder why our families aren't working. The Christianity that I preach in here from this book must be the Christianity that you practice at your house. This is the point. If we were more concerned with our relationship to Jesus than we were with anything or anyone else, if we were more concerned with our faithfulness to Christ as Christians, then we would not only be better for it, we wouldn't have to worry about our marriages. We wouldn't have to worry about our kids. I'm going to say this, but I'm owning this personally also. You know why we need to read books on marriage? Because we're terrible Christians. You know why we need to read books on parenting in every single stage that you can ever imagine? Because we're bad parents. We have no idea what we're doing. But what adds insult to the injury of that truth is we think we do. We have no clue. Not a clue. We learn retroactively. And then when the same situation happens again, you know, I told Dimey I wasn't going to lose my temper. Oh, too late, already gone. Because the problem is not 
the sanctity of marriage, which is God's design. The problem is this marriage that Daimi and I exist in is tainted by our sin. And if we're wise and full and submissive, it's a winning formula. Doesn't matter where we go in Christ. If we are where we should be in Christ, then everything else reaps the benefits of our intimacy with Jesus. Friends, God did not make marriage. This is important. God did not make marriage as a substitute for Christ, but to be a supplement of Christ here on earth. If you have a great marriage, but you're not working and walking with Christ, that's out of balance. We want you to have a great marriage, not because you've read 13 books on how to, but because your marriage is reaping the benefits of your intimacy with Jesus. It doesn't take his place. It enriches our lives. It enlivens our lives. It even enlivens the experiences that we have with him. God wants his people. This is important, guys. God wants his people to have amazing conversations in their marriages and families. God wants his people to have fantastic sexual intimacy. That is biblical. God wants his people to have deep spiritual battles side by side and victories over darkness. God wants his marriages to look back and say, babe, we got, we got through that together. We did that together rather than, I would have got through it faster if it wasn't for you. Right or wrong, you laugh because you know. Listen, all we're doing is paving the way for this series. Ephesians 5, 15 to 21 happens before he says his first word in verse 22, which is wives. He has paved the way for us, wives, husbands, parents, youth. He has paved the way for us. If we don't get this right, it doesn't matter how spectacular the series is. This comes first. We've got to walk carefully, wisely, in the fullness of the Spirit, and in submission to each other. Let me say this to close. What if I told you the idea of kingdom families is simply and plainly laid out for us in Scripture to such an extent that if we followed the plan of God, we could not fail. Wisdom, fullness, and submission. We can't lose. We can only win if we do it the way God calls us to do it. With his help, amen? With his guidance, with his encouragement and his conviction. And we're going to get there. And I'm not saying there are not practical steps to being a husband, a wife, or a youth. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is we don't rush to practicality. We go to theology first because it is the why behind all things. Why am I honest to my wife? Because God said, I am not a liar. Therefore, do not lie. I don't not lie because I don't want to get caught. I might or might not get caught. I don't lie because God is honest. That's the why behind all that we do. 
So when we talk about the foundation of what we're going to accomplish moving forward, remember always and forever that the foundation is the why. We always start with why. And theologically, it's this. We only make great Christian families when we ourselves individually are great Christians. Ultimately, I want people to come to FBCCR not only because we know how to worship in song and in study, but because their marriages are saved here. I want people to come to this church because they go, that church saved my marriage. That church grew my marriage. That church helped my marriage flourish. As the pastor of this church, I want people to tell me that their family is here because it's like this is the garden where they could grow and where they could flourish because they were being watered. They were being seasoned. This is something, church, I'm willing to lose sleep over. I'm willing to bleed for this. Because I believe that this is part of the gospel. The last verse of Malachi says, when the one whom I send comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and to the children to the parents. This is gospel. If you make it here every single Sunday and your, ho- your home life is miserable, we are not being successful. I want you to have a better worship experience with your family at your kitchen table than you do here. If that's the kind of family life you have in your home, I'm successful. 